Happy Fourth. It's like the ninth day of the fourth now. That's like this is what it is, right? Like there's still fireworks going off. Everybody's dogs are freaking out. Everybody's still waking up going, who's got them things? You ever feel just old and crotchety? Have a firework go off when you're not expecting it. The gut reaction that you have. <laughs> it's like, just see the jerk. Little Steve Martin and me. I, uh, I love what I got to witness, though, this year. I don't know how many of you grew up in a place that fireworks weren't allowed, but I did. I grew up uh, in this place called, this far-off place, called Oregon. All right? And up there, we have these things called trees um, that we love. And so we don't do fireworks because those sometimes light the trees on fire. And then what we love goes away. And so I grew up with uh, fireworks literally being uh, measured by height. That's how legal they were. If it was a less than this high fountain, it was legal type thing. Not even kidding. So then when we moved to Arizona, it was even more so. <laughs> it was like, hey, everything's almost on fire here anyways. We don't do that. Like, sparklers are illegal. Like, that just gives you an idea. Because you do a sparkler in the right field, and everything's sparkling. All of a sudden, so just... <laughs> all right? So when we moved here, and I actually helped run a fireworks tent for a little while, it was like walking around a military base in my mind. You know, you pick up one of those mortars, and you're like, what is this? Oh, it's a legal bomb. Oh, cool. What is this thing? Oh, it's a tube that you shoot the legal bomb out of. Oh, how high does it go? We don't know. It's too dark to see, but it's definitely high enough for everyone else around you to see. Now, see, the magic of that is when I first got here, it was totally new for me, right? Totally new. So it's fun. It's exciting. We got to do this cool game where we put uh, safety goggles on and a mouth guard in, and we shot bottle rockets at each other and tried to hit it with a plastic bat. All right? Yeah. We've done that. It's great. Don't wear a white t-shirt. Just throw that out there. I'll display all your wounds. We had a blast. But then what happens? It wears off. You see one too many pictures of someone's hand with one of those weapons that they held on to. Uh, you, you hear one too many stories. Like I had a friend that had one eye, in, literally in college, and the other eye was from a bottle rocket, and it was no longer there. And you hear too many things to where the magic, what happens? You've seen them before. It hurts your ears more than before. And you don't want to get hurt and you don't want to do it anymore. And you had those experiences? I, I had this experience watching Ron and Donna McNaughton chase each other while shooting fireworks at each other. Not even kidding. These two are like 12-year-olds shooting bottle rockets around at each other in my front lawn. I'm going, what is happening? <laughs> Welcome to Missouri. But then I had kids. You know how much fun the 4th of July was this last year? What? You know what their favorite firework is? You're not going to be surprised. The poopy puppy. <laughs> they were freaking out for the poopy puppy. All it is is one of those snakes. You remember the snakes that just stain your driveway? That's all it did, to just stained your driveway. You did it, some sort of chemical reaction, it grows or whatever. They just stuck this in the butt of a dog that's cardboard, and they call it the poopy puppy. So this thing just, whoo, you get, use your imagination. 
They think it's this most hysterical thing on the face of the planet. But then we got to the bigger stuff. Now, I will tell you, we did buy a couple rockets that never went up. They just went boom. Scared most of us. Two of them did get hit by shrapnel, which was, as a parent, I was very excited and thought was awesome because neither of them were hurt. And we're like, this is fun. And my wife was like, we're done. <laughs> but then we did one of those lamps. You know, from Tangled, we're all singing the song. You know. And then we did the mortar. And you would have thought Christmas had come in July. That thing went off, and they looked at me like, was that, was that intentional? Was that how it's supposed to look? And I was like, yes. And they're like, let's do it again. And the joy that was on their face and the excitement that was in their eyes and the way that they couldn't stop talking about it and they wanted to do more and they, they felt what we all would long to feel again, right? The joy in those small things. The joy of new discovery. The passion of seeing something for the first time and, and not even completely understanding it, but knowing that there's more to it than you know and there could be more out there that you haven't seen yet. I mean, that's exciting. And I'll tell you, when I went to study the book of John, I felt like fireworks at first to me. And not the kid kind. <laughs> you know what it felt like? Same old, same old. You get to read a little bit, and you're like, yeah. John 3.16, John 10.10, 10. John 15. And, and you just, you go through it, and you know, they're, they're still, you know, type moments, but they're just kind of like, eh, maybe. And I don't know where you're at. Maybe you didn't grow up in the church, and you've never heard the book of John, and you've never read the book of John. Uh, maybe you did grow up in the church just like me, and so you hear this and you're like, yeah, so we're going to go through the book of John. Let me break out my binder of sermons and things that I've learned and I know. Let me, let me sit down and school you, Trevor, on some of the things that I'm aware of. I mean, this is a book that I've studied for years. Wherever you're at on that journey, I want to invite you in because what God is doing in this study not just with me, but with what I hope with you, is he's bringing the joy back into it. He, he's exposing to me that this book is not a simple gospel, as I was told growing up. You want to hear the gospel? You want to hear the good news in a simplest form? Go read the book of John. That's what I was told. It's the easy one. And I'm like, cool, all right. And I read it, and I'm like, you're right, it is. But then you get to tell you this right now. It's a masterpiece. And you don't even have to believe in Jesus to see it as such. It's a masterpiece. It is a court document level. Picasso of a book. I feel intimidated 
what I thought would be simple and easy, I feel intimidated to even give you an intro to what is possibly supposed to be covered in this book. It's incredible. I feel like the guy from Arizona and Oregon that just showed up to the fireworks tent. I thought I knew what fireworks were, little poppers and little fountains. And I'd seen them before, but then I get into this and I start freaking out. Because there's some big stuff in here. Like crazy deep stuff. Like well-articulated imagery and symbolism that is meant to make you go, what? I don't get it. Let me just show you a picture of what the book of John looks like. Look at this image. I know you can't read it. It's made for ants. We'll get there later, okay? If you want to look at it on your level, you can go to kingswaymo.com, click on the bulletin, and it's there. There's even a link to the one that you can download. Now, here's what's so cool about this. I'll lay it out to you. You can maybe, yeah, you can't read that. That's ant level. All right, come up here. It tells you the author. It walks through each chapter. It tells you each chapter's small definition of what it is. It lays out the transitions of the book. It gives you the final decree. It gives you the ending place of what this is all for. And then it gives you the epilogue of where this is going. And it gives you this symbolism, these sevens that are tied all through the center of the book. And it lays out that every name that Jesus will be called and all the symbolism that you're supposed to use as a decoder ring and the very filter that you're supposed to drive through the whole book. And that's just the surface of what it all means. Now, if you're unaware of where these are, this is the Bible Project. It's one of the coolest resources that's come out in the last few years. This is free to download. 100%. There's also an eight-minute YouTube video that goes along with this, that walks you through it, that's on that site. In eight minutes, fireworks will be set off in your mind, and you will see, for the first time, like a small child, I hope, the depth and the beauty that is in the book of John. And again, I stress this. You don't have to believe in Jesus to see that this is a really well put together book. Incredibly good. Pretty cool. So today, I am not going to try to walk through that. All right? Good luck. I watched somebody walk through that that made it. His name's Tim Mackey. Took him six hours. Buckle up. No, I'm just kidding. No, so we're not going to walk through that. But I am going to answer and give you three things that I want you to walk away with today. Okay? So the first one is this. Who wrote the book of John? Let's just start simple. Okay? Super simple. Who wrote the book? Uh, there's two main ideas of who wrote this book. Because it's really important when you're studying a book to know who wrote it. All right? A.K.A. if you find a love letter to someone else you would want to know who wrote it and who it's written to, right? Because if you found it and it's to you, that changes the context than if you found it and it's for your friend. That'd be really awkward, right? So who wrote this? There's two main ideas here. Because 
crazy idea, but the author is humble enough to not put his name in the letter. That is frustrating, right, to us. We're like, who wouldn't sign the letter? But to him, he saw it as he wanted nothing to take away from the story of Jesus. So he left context clues, but guess what? It's 2,000 years old, so those context clues are a little bit more difficult to follow. So there's two theories here. One is that it's John the Elder, which had a huge role in the early church. We have documentation of his role. And so we're like, it could be John the Elder. The other one is John of Zebedee, which is one of the disciples of Jesus. Now, both were eyewitnesses, both saw, but the only way that we are able to identify which one it possibly could be is that this is the way that he describes himself. This is his signature, the one that Jesus loved. Or the disciple that Jesus loved. So if you look at that, you're like, okay, so that's his signature. That's the only way that he's able to to describe himself or write himself into this letter, this book, without feeling like he's going too far, taking some credit. Because it's not about him. So the ending is this. John wrote the book. Get it? Otherwise, it would be John the Elder or John the Zebedee. Both have great credibility. Both are high, highly esteemed as first eyewitnesses, but we don't know which one. You can make a great case for either one. But here's what I do know. Why he wrote the book or what was really going on is John loves irony. John loves irony. Whoever this guy is, he loves irony. In fact, in the Gospel of John, it is one of the silliest things. If you want to track something silly as you read this, here's something cool. Characters often say more than they intend and even the opposite of what they mean. Let me give you a perfect example of how he records the high priest in chapter 11 talking about what they should do, why they should kill Jesus to save the nation of Israel from his rebellion. This is what Caiaphas said. Then the one named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all? Do you not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than for the whole nation to perish? This is the man who wants Jesus crucified. Do you see the irony in this? As the reader, you're supposed to read that and go, oh, does he know what he's saying? Because that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. But John records it, and he hasn't told you the ending yet in chapter 11. So it's just there. And he does this all the time. All the time. It's one of his writing styles. So as you read this, or if you chose to read this, you would find characters constantly knowing more than they actually know and saying things that you're like, you don't really know what you're saying. You ever witnessed a child doing this? They pick up on something that you're like, how did you pick up on this? How did you get that? You know that? You don't know that. You don't know what you're saying right now, do you? I had my, my kids all the time pick up on things that I'm like, okay, back up. <laughs> How do you know that? 
who taught you that? What are we doing? This morning, I found out they had taken Alexis out to the uh, sunroom behind our house in the morning without my wife and I knowing, and they had plugged it in, and they were playing music, and no one knew. You know, because those Alexis things, they're just child smart. And when she went and confronted them and asked what they were doing, they said, what? We're having a party. It's 9.15 in the morning. (laughs) Cool. How do you know that you need music and you need to have a party? How do you... What do you mean you're having a party? Your parents can't have parties. We're too tired. We just sleep all the time. But in a moment... They know what to say. And they have the words, but they have no idea that they're actually saying, no, that's pretty accurate to what a party is. Here's my second thought. We're moving through this quick. Who is this book for? If we know who wrote it, who's the book for? This is really, really, really important. If this book is not for us, we shouldn't be reading it. Do you get that? If it's not intended for us to have a position to read it and to enjoy it and for it to be something that's fulfilling, we shouldn't be checking it out. So is it for us? Good question. Who's the book for? Here's the thought process. It's actually in the book. Pretty cool. John 20, 31, John records this, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. Let me just say this right here. All of this, this is the ending of the whole book, but these are written that you may what? Believe. Do you recognize 2,000 years ago, between probably 60 and 80 AD is when this was written. I don't know for sure. This book was written with the concept of recording things that you would read it in such a chronological way, that you would read it in such a presented case that you would go, oh my gosh, I need to evaluate whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. This is one of the only books in the New Testament that makes its goal so very clear. And this is so neat, because here's the goal. If you've fallen out of faith, if you've been struggling with your faith, read John. If you have a strong faith and you want to see it emboldened, you want to see it encouraged, read John. If you've never chosen to believe in Jesus and you're curious about what it would take, read John. It's what it's for. That's a powerful, powerful thing. It's that simple. When John orchestrated this book, it was intentionally built this way. In fact, he lays this stuff out so clearly throughout the book. I wrote, I wrote this down. I know it was in the poster earlier. But there are seven things 
that John makes clear seven, seven things three different ways, which is really, really fun. First, J- Jesus says, I am, seven times in the book of John. Now, this I am statement makes it clear, I am is what the answer was. When, when Moses was sent from the mountain with a burning bush back to Pharaoh, the most powerful nation at the time, to set the people of Hebrew, the Hebrew people free, Moses asked, who should I tell Pharaoh sent me? And literally he got back, I am. And if you haven't ever studied that before, it is the most, like one of those things Moses you can tell is like, "Uh uh-huh, and also? And would you like elaborate? (laughs) Would you like take it a little further? And the thought is like, no, 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 I am. I've always been, I will always be, I am the God. Pharaoh was seen as a deity in his people. So it's a trump card. So when John uses these statements that Jesus used about himself in his gospel, he's claiming something. He's God. Now the funny thing about seven is it's a chosen number. Seven is completion. Seven is perfect. Seven is whole. Intentional symbolism. I am the wholeness of God. And Jesus is seven statements. Pretty cool. How about this one? Seven things? He does this. Seven signs. Seven signs of who Jesus really is. He tells you that he did not record all the events. He just says, I'm going to pick seven. I'm going to tell you the seven that had the biggest effect on me. And he lays them out for you in this book. Seven of them. Perfect, whole, complete, revealing of who Jesus is. And then he gives you another seven. As if you're like, oh, what? He gives you the seven titles, the godly titles that Jesus was called. Not what he called himself, what other called him during his ministry. And the cool thing about this one is these are all found in chapter one. He tells you what they're going to be. Chapter 1 contains every title that Jesus will be called in the whole book. They're hidden in there. It's like the intro statements to a court where they lay out the case and they tell you what they believe Jesus to be and then the witnesses and the stories come through with the testimony throughout the book to confirm what was claimed. Seven. Whole. Complete. In fact, I'll tell you this. It's simple to read, but with deep layers of symbolism and imagery. Deep layers. Like, 45 deep. Let me just give you one, because I don't want to spoil some of this stuff, because we're going to walk through it. I don't want to spoil it all. But here's one. Light is equal to life in the book of John. Every time. Every single time you hear light, you think life. And every time you hear the word life, you should think light. So much so, this blew my mind when I learned this, 
Anyone that does not believe in Jesus and the story is recorded in John, it will, it will occur at nighttime. Anytime someone does not believe in who Jesus is and they have questions or they doubt or they do not truly, the story happens and is recorded at night. John intentionally chose those because he wants that theme to be that clear in the book. To give you a quick example, John 3.16. Nicodemus, one of the most popular verses you've ever read, you didn't realize Nicodemus comes at night when no one else is looking, when no one else can see, and he's asking questions but he walks away in the dark. Because he doesn't say he believes. The imagery of this, the symbolism in this, it is powerful. It is no longer something that we should see as the simple one or the thing that we've read before that we haven't touched again, that we put on the back burner, that we, we got to go to Matthew that has 124 Old Testament quotes, whereas John only has 15. We got to go to Matthew to, to get the details, whereas John, I would tell you this right now, it's aimed at a deeper level of cognitiveness. It understands its artistic expression to the detail. Light equals life, and every time you see those themes in this book, it will be congruent. This book is good. It's powerful. It's there. You have it. One of the things I learned this last week that just blew my mind, and some of you that's never read John, you're going to be like, I didn't know this. And those of you that have read John before, you might not know this either. You know, we talked about who wrote this right at the beginning. I want to know who the we is then. Who's the we? Because there's a we in this book multiple times. The most prominent one is in chapter 21. And this is what it says. This is where we get the concept of the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's either Jesus, it's either John Zebedee or John the Elder, we're not sure. But this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. This is his signature right here. I'm like, cool, great, <laughs> got it. We know that his testimony is true. We? Who in the world is we? I thought this was John's book. This is so cool to me. John takes all this time. He's got all these sevens. He's got this symbolism. He's taken things out of chronological order to bring the impact to a more impactful, crazy, deep way. Don't read the book of John as chronological because it's not. It's, it's someone taking the evidence and placing it intentionally so you will get it. And he's done all this work and he's placed it in front of, it sounds like, other groups of eyewitnesses. It sounds like he's placed it in front of a group of people 
that have seen what he's talking about. In other words, this isn't a lone wolf up in a cabin. This is someone bringing it before others who have seen and are willing to testify to its truth. And they sign off on it. In fact, the statement that follows is even more powerful because it explains off on John's account. It says this, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose there would not even be, the whole world would not have enough room for the books that it would be written. I mean, that, that to me, the whole world would not have enough room for the books that would be written. This is John saying, this is my attempt to take what I have seen Jesus do, what I have witnessed Jesus doing, and to lay it out so that others may come to believe. And there is a whole group of people going, we testify to what he says is true. Not that it's all of it, but that what he says is true. You know what's neat about this? If you were to read this in a group, and you were to read this book, two or three people, some who have read this before, others who haven't touched it in years, and you were to read this book, we would join in with our testimony. We would join in with our testimony. Those who have come to believe would read the Gospel of John and say what? Oh, this is true. But I have seen so much more than just this. We're in this book still. The context is for the church. It's meant to be studied by the church. It's meant to be held up and examined by the church. In fact, I'll just tell you this, two thoughts to kind of pull this all together. This is a singular artistic instance that is repaid with substantial meditation. Now, what in the world is that? I mean, that sounds like crazy. This is our singular artistic instances that are repaid with substantial meditation. This book is meant to be this. How many of you have looked at a painting and watched it come to life with emotion? How many of you have watched a movie and watched it capture your heart? How many of you have watched a child become more than child's play, but explain and show deeper expressions of things that are still true, like joy and new and love? The book of John is not meant to be read once. In fact, I would tell you this, the book of John is meant to be read a number of times. He has intentionally designed the books that you do not get everything out of one reading. He's intentionally designed it that way. You're supposed to get to the end and go, wait a second, what did I just catch? Here's another word, witness. Witness is through the entire book witnesses all over the place. What is it? 
It's trying to prove to you that he's not recording his thoughts. He's not recording John's emotions. He's capturing the people's emotions in the story. He's putting them on the stand. He's letting them tell their evidence. And he's capturing it. Go back through and you read it and it just shows up. There it is. So here's my challenge. If this is, the, this is the way that John designed the book and that the community signed off on, what do we need to do as we're starting this? It's simple. Let's read the book together with fresh eyes and open hearts. Let's read it together. So two challenges. You ready? First one is this. You take one day off a week, but you read one chapter a week, you'll have finished it in this month. Give yourself one day that you take a break. But if you read one chapter a day for this month, you could read the whole book and some change. Just 21 chapters. If you're looking for a challenge, though, read it between each week. Three chapters a day. And you could read the book of John every week this month. Three chapters a day. You pick it up. And here's the cool thing. One week, start with light is life. And just go through there. You don't have to understand everything. You don't have to get it all. You don't have to see that it starts the same way that Genesis starts in the beginning. That'll be as confusing as all get out. You'll be like, what are we talking about here? How do we start this? But every time you see light is life, you circle it. And by the end of it, you'll have seen and tied together that symbolism through the whole book. And then you start over. And you go with witness. And you tie all those things together. I'm telling you, by the end, maybe you'll start to realize why John wrote it the way he did. That the evidence is so strong in his own heart. That the evidence was so strong in the community that each person have the opportunity to believe. Because aren't we all looking for full life? Some of us have tried to find it other places than Jesus. But I'm telling you, life in his name, full life, John 10, 10. life that is grace and love given, John 3, 16, was with us and in us because of Jesus. John wants all of us to believe. I hope you'll take the time to read this week. Fresh eyes. Thinking about fireworks. Believing that God's going to do something maybe he's never done before or just do it again. That he would make it fresh. And then next week when we start chapter one we'll be poised and ready to see what God's going to do. Would you pray with me?